0: As we begin the message this morning, I want to give you a quick quiz, and you don't need to answer out loud. Just see if you can figure this one out in your mind. It's a one-question quiz, and here it is. How many letters in the New Testament did the, did the Apostle Paul write? Now, maybe you're trying to add them up in your mind by saying Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. However, the answer to the, quest, the quiz question is One. One, Paul was the author of 13 letters in the New Testament, but the evidence is that he only actually wrote one with his own hand, and that was the letter we call Galatians. That's the letter we begin to consider this morning. So please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Galatians chapter 1 and follow along as I read the opening Six verses of this Spirit-inspired letter written by the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. The reason why I said that Paul actually only wrote one of his 13 letters in the New Testament is because the evidence points to the fact that he usually dictated his letters to a stenographer or an amanuensis or a secretary that recorded what Paul dictated. For example, we know that the book of Romans was dictated by Paul to a man named Tertius according to Romans 16.22. We know that some of his other letters were dictated to Timothy or to Sosthenes or maybe others. But Paul was so concerned about what was happening in Galatia that it seems that he didn't even take the time to get a stenographer to record his letter. He sat right down and wrote the letter himself. He indicates that over in chapter 4. When he heard that the believers in Galatia were turning toward the teaching that says salvation is by faith in Jesus plus the Old Testament law, he immediately picked up a pen and began writing. This letter before us is what he wrote. It is an extremely important letter because it strongly affirms that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is a teaching that has been undermined or even attacked down through the centuries. Still today, there are groups that teach salvation by faith in Christ plus... And you can fill in the blank. Salvation by faith in Christ plus the sacraments. Salvation by faith in Christ plus baptism. Salvation by faith in Christ... Plus your own good works. Salvation by faith in Christ, plus communion. Salvation by faith in Christ, plus church membership. Salvation by faith in Christ, plus confirmation. There are always groups that want to add something to the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It goes on today. And it went on during the first century, which is why Paul penned this letter. He had preached the gospel to the Galatians, and they had embraced it, but then some people came along, probably a group called the Judaizers, that said salvation is by faith in Christ plus circumcision, or faith in Christ plus keeping the Old Testament law. And the Galatians were beginning to be swayed by that viewpoint. They had responded to the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But when they were told that they needed Christ plus circumcision and the Mosaic law to be fully saved, they bought into it. Now at first you may wonder how in the world, or why in the world, would they have believed this group that was telling them these things? But just think about it. Who was it that established circumcision as the sign of the Old Covenant? It was God Himself. Who was it that gave the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament? It was God Himself. When you think about it that way, you can see why the Galatians could have been confused by those who were saying that you need Christ plus circumcision, or Christ, plus the law of Moses. God did establish establish circumcision as the sign of the old covenant, but God didn't give that sign as a means of salvation. That wasn't its purpose. And God did give the Mosaic law to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, but God did not give the law as a means of salvation. That wasn't its purpose. And Paul will prove those things throughout this letter. In the same way, God has given us communion to remember the Lord's death, but the purpose of that ordinance is not to gain salvation. Along the same lines, God has given us baptism as an ordinance to declare our faith in Christ, but the purpose of baptism is not to gain salvation. So you can see why this letter is so important within the framework of the New Testament. It is always the tendency of the human heart to want to add something to the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's always the tendency of man to want to add something to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is why the Spirit of God not only prompted Paul to write this letter, guided him to write this letter, but made sure to preserve this letter in the canon of the New Testament for all ages. Now let me pause here for just a moment to address an issue that's related to this topic. Because Christians want to protect the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is a good thing, There are some who say that if you preach repentance as a condition of salvation, then you are wrongly adding to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Although the motive or intentions of those who say that may be commendable, their accusation is not biblically accurate. Proclaiming repentance is not an undermining of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. True faith in Christ, genuine faith, real faith, includes repentance. When we turn to Christ in faith, we are turning from our sin and from ourselves. So faith in Christ and repentance are not mutually exclusive. Let me illustrate it this way. If someone needs to go north and can only go north to get to his destination, then it's not wrong to tell him that the way to get to his destination is to go the opposite of south. You can either tell him to go north or you can tell him to go away from the south. In the same way, when the Bible talks about repentance, it is simply saying that you go away from your sin, you go away from self And you go to Christ. There is no contradiction. And there are literally dozens of verses that prove that point. For example, in Acts 20, verse 21, Paul said that his message was repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God, faith toward Christ. That message is not an undermining of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. In 1 Thessalonians 1:9, Paul described the salvation of the Thessalonians by saying they and here's the exact quote, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That is how Paul described their salvation. That's repentance and faith, turning to God from idols. To serve the living and true God. That message is not an undermining of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Repentance is an integral part of genuine saving faith. That is why Jesus said, in Luke 24, 47, that repentance, and rem- this is, these are his words now, quote, repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Those who are our Lord's exact words. Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Oh no, Jesus didn't mention faith in that verse. Well, that's because repentance is an integral part of genuine, saving faith. If someone is truly repenting, then he is turning from sin and from self to Christ, which is what faith is. So again, let me say that preaching repentance is not undermining the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. True faith has repentance as an integral component. So, talking about repentance in relation to salvation is not adding something to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But talking about baptism, or church membership, or confirmation, or communion, or the sacraments in relation to salvation is adding something to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that comes under the condemnation of what the Spirit of God prompted Paul to write in this letter. So with all that as background, let's jump into our consideration of this key letter of the New Testament. Verse 1, notice how Paul opens. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul begins this letter by asserting his apostleship. He doesn't do this because he was on a power trip. He doesn't do this because he was trying to lord it over anyone. He simply wanted to affirm that he was qualified to say what he says in this letter. He was an apostle. An apostle was one who was sent by authority with a commission. The term was used in Paul's day to refer to the representatives of the emperor or the emissaries of the king. That was an apostle, one who was sent with authority to be a representative. One of the requirements to be an apostle was to have seen the risen Christ personally according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And of course, Paul met that requirement. Jesus Christ appeared to Paul when Paul was on the road to Damascus, as is recorded in Acts chapter 9. Paul saw Jesus. And it was then that Christ called him to be his apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul alludes to that here in verse 1, By saying that he was an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In other words, Paul wasn't appointed to be an apostle by other men. He didn't receive his apostleship from other people. He was appointed to be an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ and by God the Father. His commissioning wasn't from men, and his message wasn't from men. What he writes in this letter isn't merely his opinion. What he writes in this letter isn't from human origin. To say it another way, the content of this letter comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself and from God the Father. Directed by, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Paul is starting out firm or direct... Because the issue which he addresses in this letter is of paramount importance. This is not a trivial issue, beloved. Nothing is more important than making sure that we understand the gospel and that we have it right. Nothing is more important than that. It's not as big of a deal if we don't understand everything about eschatology or end times. But it is a big deal if we don't understand the gospel. Nothing is is more important than that because it affects a person's eternal destiny. If you have the wrong view of the rapture or the wrong view of the millennium, you won't go to hell. But if you have the wrong view of the gospel, it will affect your eternal destiny. That is why Paul uses such strong wording at times in this letter, and we will see that. He uses some very direct words Straightforward, almost harsh statements because of the seriousness of what he is addressing. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, he called this same group that was coming to the Galatians and sort of wooing them or teaching them, he calls them, he calls those who misrepresent the gospel, evil workers. Why call them evil workers? Because nothing is more evil than perverting the gospel and leading people to a Christless eternity. Nothing is more evil than that. It is evil to steal from other people and take their property, take their money. That's evil. That's wicked. It is evil to assault people and hurt them. It is evil to murder It is evil to rape. It is evil to molest. But nothing is more evil than perverting the gospel and leading people to a Christless eternity. I know that most people don't see it that way, and even a lot of Christians don't see it that way. But nothing is more evil than perverting the gospel and leading people to a Christless eternity. So Paul will use strong language at times in this letter. And he opens by asserting his apostolic authority to be able to address this crucial issue. He says in verse 2, And all the brethren who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Paul wrote this letter to several churches, unlike his letter to the Romans or to the Philippians or to the Colossians, etc. Most of his letters in the New Testament were, were written to a specific church or to a specific person, such as Timothy or Titus. But this letter was written to a group of churches. It was directed toward the churches that Paul founded on his first missionary journey when he visited Lystra, and Derby and Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, and other cities, which are places that are located in modern-day Turkey. Paul had visited those places, and you can see this in the book of Acts, in the chapters 13 and 14. He visited those places. He preached the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But when he left, a group moved in behind him, and began to tell the people in those churches that they must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if they want to be fully saved. This group was called the Judaizers. The Judaizers believed and taught that faith in Jesus is important. Please hear that. They believed that faith in Jesus is important to be saved. But it was also necessary to be circumcised, if you are a man, and to keep the law of Moses. Let me say this another way. They did not deny that faith in Jesus is necessary for salvation. But they taught that there was more required to be saved. Beloved, please hear that. Please understand that. Because it is an exact parallel with several groups or religions today that also teach that faith in Jesus is necessary to be saved, but more is required to be saved. There are those who say that faith in Jesus is necessary to be saved, but you also need the sacraments. Faith in Jesus is necessary to be saved, but you also need baptism. Faith in Jesus is necessary to be saved, but you need a sufficient number of good works that you do. These are very common teachings in our world today, and they are exactly like the teaching of the Judaizers in the first century. They believed, they taught, That faith in Jesus is important to be saved, but it is also necessary to be circumcised if you are a man and to keep the law of Moses. They were so committed to their teaching, so zealous, so eager, that they actually followed behind Paul. They followed his itinerary. Wherever Paul went, they came behind him. He moved from one town to the next. They came right in behind him. And they visited all the churches he established so that they could say to the people, we are so glad that Paul has been here and taught you about Jesus. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And if you want to be fully saved or saved completely, you need to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. That was their message. And it was very confusing to people in the first century. After all, it was God himself who gave the sign of circumcision. It was God himself who gave the law to Moses. So how can you ignore circumcision? If you know the story in Exodus, God met Moses on one occasion, and the Bible says he was going to kill him because he had not circumcised his son. That's big-time stuff. That's pretty serious, isn't it? How are you going to ignore circumcision with passages like that? How are you going to ignore the law of God given to Moses? Do you see how confusing this could be? So the churches in Galatia were beginning to embrace this teaching and it disturbed Paul greatly. Therefore, he wrote this letter and directed it to be circulated to all the churches in the Galatia region. In verse 3, he says, Grace to you, And peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This was a common way for Paul to begin his letters because, in that culture, in that day, In the Gentile world, people would often greet each other by saying charis in Greek, or grace. And as you probably know, in the Jewish world, people would often greet each other by using the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. So Paul often pulled these two together and would say grace to you and peace. So he is encompassing his Gentile audience and his Jewish audience. But when Paul begins his letters this way, it was no mere formality. When Paul wished them God's grace, he was expressing his desire for them to rely solely and exclusively on God's grace for salvation. Not their own deeds, their own works, their own religious efforts. And when Paul wished them God's peace, he was expressing his desire for them to experience the peace of God. That comes when you can rest solely on God's grace for salvation and not on your own good works. Stop to think about this. When you are relying on your own religious works and deeds, you never really know if you've done enough. You never know. How can you have peace when you are unsure of your salvation? How can you have peace when you don't know if you've done enough? Maybe you're one work short. How can you have peace? Deep, profound peace comes when we trust completely and only and solely on the grace of God and the grace of Christ for salvation. That's what is behind Paul's statement here in verse 3. Then Paul adds this thought in verse 4. He says of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus gave himself for our sins because all of our works and effort and merit can never atone for our sin. Never. It doesn't matter what we do or how much we do. We cannot wash away our sins by religious deeds and works. Jesus had to pay for our sins, and that's what he did when he died. And think about it this way. If we could deal with our sins by our own works, then why did Jesus bother dying? Why bother? It was a wasted sacrifice if we can erase our sins by our own efforts of course it is blasphemous to say such a thing it is a blasphemous statement to say that the death of jesus was a waste but that is the implication of all works-based salvation systems when you teach people that their own works their own deeds their own religious efforts can save them then you are basically saying that the the sacrifice of Jesus was not really necessary. That is completely contrary to the gospel or good news. The bad news is that we are hopelessly in debt to God because of of our sin. But the good news is the first phrase here in verse 4, Jesus gave himself for our sins. Jesus gave himself to save us from the penalty of sin. However, that's not the only purpose of his death. Paul is clear on that here in this verse. He also gave himself to save us from the power of sin in our lives during this present time. And that's why Paul adds the next phrase here in verse 4. He says that he might deliver us from the present evil age. Jesus died to save us from the penalty of sin, but he also died to deliver us from the present evil age. In other words, let me say it a different way. Jesus died to save us from judgment, and he died to rescue us from this world's system so that our lives will be transformed, so our lives will be different. To say it another way, Jesus saves us while we are in sin, but he saves us to pull us out of sin. In theological terms, these two aspects of salvation are called justification and sanctification, more specifically, progressive sanctification. Justification and progressive sanctification. Jesus died to forgive our sins, And he died to rescue us from this present evil age to live a transformed life, to live a different life than the world around us. And the last phrase in this verse reminds us that this is the will of our God and Father. This is his will, his desire, his plan, which results in his glory. And that's why Paul adds verse 5, He says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The marvelous plan of salvation conceived in eternity past, the the marvelous plan of salvation to redeem men and women from sin and from this present evil age brings immense glory to God the Father. When we understand salvation and when we experience salvation, We become trophies of God's grace in life, and we will be trophies of God's grace for all eternity. Paul even says in Ephesians chapter 3 that in eternity, we will be trophies of God's grace to the angels. Think about that one. The angels will marvel at God's grace in us, to us. And it will be for all eternity, which is why Paul says, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our salvation doesn't merely give God glory here and now. When He he changes us and forgives us and transforms us, our salvation will give God glory for the rest of eternity. Now all of this is Paul's introduction to the letter. It's different than the way he usually introduced a letter, and that's because the issue that he was compelled to address prompted him to alter his typical or usual introduction. Everything he has already said has been directed at the situation in Galatia where the Judaizers were spreading their teaching of salvation by faith in Jesus plus circumcision and the Mosaic Law. Everything he's already said has sort of hinted at or addressed that. But after this brief and pointed introduction, Paul launches into his concern and into the body of his letter. Notice how he begins in verse 6. He says, I marvel. Your translation may say, I am astonished. I am stunned that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Notice that Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. Don't miss that. That phrase is extremely important. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. Paul was grieved that they were turning from a person A system. They were turning from Jesus alone to a system that could supposedly save them. That is such a key concept to understand, beloved. When people embrace a Jesus plus teaching, whatever it is, when people embrace a Jesus plus teaching, They are turning away from the person of Christ alone to some kind of works system that supposedly saves. Yet salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. It's not found in any system. It's not found in any ritual or any religious work or religious deed or religious activity. That's why Paul words this the way he does. I marvel. I am stunned that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Maybe they didn't realize it, but the Galatians were actually spurning the grace of Christ. That's why Paul says, You're turning away from him who called you in the grace of Christ. They were actually spurning. The grace of christ you say how's that well when you embrace the view that something you do helps you get salvation then you're actually spurning the grace of christ that's what the galatians were doing which is why it was so urgent in paul's heart and mind to write this letter When he heard that the believers in Galatia were turning toward the teaching that says salvation is by faith in Jesus plus circumcision and the Old Testament law, he knew that he had to address the matter fiercely. And that's what he does throughout this letter. He makes it perfectly clear. And Lord willing, we'll see in the weeks to come. He makes it perfectly clear that salvation does not come through circumcision. It does not come through keeping the Old Testament law. It doesn't come through those things. Now, it sounds strange to us here in the 21st century, especially here in the West, not in the Middle Eastern culture. It sounds so strange to us that people would believe that salvation could come through circumcision. But the reason it sounds strange to us is because we're not Jewish. We are Gentiles. And we don't naturally have the same perspective a Jew would have as a result of what happened in the Old Testament with Abraham when God told him that circumcision would be the sign of his covenant. In Genesis 17, God gave the sign of circumcision to the Jewish nation as a sign of his covenant, but the Jewish people twisted the meaning of it. That is why their prophets would often say throughout their history, you've read this throughout Hebrew Scripture, circumcise your hearts. I want your hearts to have the sin cut away from them. The Jews centered on this external sign, but God was concerned about internal genuineness. That's why in Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul said, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In other words, what Paul was saying there is, listen, being a Jew doesn't give you salvation. Being Jewish doesn't automatically grant you salvation. And, of course, this was something that Jesus, John the baptizer, both had to address throughout their ministries. You remember John saying... Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Don't you dare say, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up these stones to be children of Abraham. And Jesus addressed the same thing. John 8, I know you're Abraham's descendants. He said, I know you're Jewish, but you are of your father the devil. Just because you're Jewish doesn't make you saved. In Galatians 6.15, Paul said, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision... But a new creature. He was saying it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not circumcised, but what matters is are you a new creation in Christ? The Jews had completely missed the point. God wasn't interested in just some surgical operation. God intended for the physical circumcision to be a picture of the circumcision of the heart. That's what he wanted, but the Jews made it into a means of salvation. It had become for them a means of salvation. And that's the message that was being embraced by the Galatians, which amazed Paul. He was shocked, he was stunned that they would so quickly turn from Christ alone to a different gospel. And please notice here in verse 6 that Paul calls it a different gospel. The gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is not the same gospel as salvation by faith in Christ plus circumcision. It's not the same gospel. The gospel of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not the same gospel as salvation by faith in Christ plus plus keeping the law. Those aren't the same gospels. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not the same gospel as salvation by faith in Christ plus the sacraments. That's two different gospel messages. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is not the same gospel as salvation by faith in Christ plus baptism. God gave circumcision as the sign of the old covenant, and he gave baptism as the sign of the new covenant, but neither of those were intended as a means of salvation. But people do with baptism... Exactly what the Jews did with circumcision in the Old Testament, they try to make it a means of salvation. People often ask me, and I, I I've lost track of how many times I've been asked this question. People will often ask me if if people in such and such a church, and just they list some church, if people in such a, such a church are Christians. And the reason they ask that is because they know that particular church teaches Christ plus something for salvation. So whenever I'm asked that question, you know, are, are people in such and such church, are, are they Christians? Here's my answer. A Christian is someone who trusts completely and only in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the answer. A Christian is someone who trusts completely and only in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in any religious ritual for your salvation, if you're trusting in any religious deed, and you are not trusting in Christ alone, then you have canceled the grace of God. You say, now hold it, Brian. Whoa, whoa, that's a strong statement. Where do you get that from? How can you defend making that kind of statement? Romans eleven six. 6. Here it is. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer of grace. That verse says it. It says that a works system of salvation and a grace system of salvation are mutually exclusive. You can't have both. It's either by works or it's by grace. It's one or the other. It can't be both. And that's why Paul said here in verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Beloved, salvation is all of grace and nothing of ourselves and nothing of our works. It's all of the grace of God. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow together in closing, I ask you the question, what are you trusting in for your salvation? What are you trusting in for your salvation? Is it in Christ In Christ alone? Or are you trusting in your own good works, your own religious deeds, whatever they may be? What are you trusting in for your salvation? Hear the gospel. Hear the good news that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you are trusting in anything else, Even something that's in the Bible, like circumcision, or baptism, or the Old Testament law. If you're trusting in anything else, you're trusting in the wrong thing for salvation. It's Christ, and Christ alone. So turn to Him today. If there's any doubt in your mind, any question in your heart about where you stand with the Lord, turn to Him today. Don't turn to a church, don't turn to a system, turn to Christ and Christ alone. Father, we are grateful that you saw fit to include this marvelous letter in the pages of the New Testament. We need this reminder because we recognize this is the, it is the tendency of our own human hearts to want to somehow add something. We, we want to contribute to our salvation. It's probably our pride or our own sense of self-sufficiency, but, but we want to be a contributing factor instead of thrusting ourselves, throwing ourselves solely and exclusively on your grace. May we be like the man who went up to the temple to pray, and unlike the Pharisee who said, I thank you that I am not like this other man, I do all of these things, the other man said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He would not even lift his eyes to you, but simply cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And our Lord Jesus said, That man went home justified. He went home right with you, Father. He went home saved. He went home in your family because he threw himself completely on your mercy and on your grace. Thank you that that is the way salvation works, that it doesn't depend on us. We don't have to have agony of mind wondering if we've done enough. Have we worked enough? Have we accomplished enough? We can have deep profound peace knowing our salvation is certain because it does not depend on us it only depends on christ and his grace rivet that truth deep in our souls and we pray for anyone hearing these words now who has not thrown himself on the grace of christ may your holy spirit draw that man or woman to jesus christ today in whose name we pray amen